one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. That's one thing, and we think about the whole thing when we vote. And we got to think about what would it mean for that to happen. And so we don't want to be people who just hear, oh, give me something, I'll take it. And that's how I make my decision, because that's a selfish way to vote. And voting is an act where we we prioritize our neighbors, too. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we will really be fulfilling our role as America's political therapist because there are many, many things going on that are producing many, many big feelings among ourselves and our listener community. So buckle up, everybody. Get comfortable. Make yourself some tea. Before we dive into the State of the Union, impeachment, and the Iowa caucus, two quick things to share. One, 
We just celebrated our book birthday, Beth. Our book, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening, has been out for a year. Happy book birthday, and thank you to everyone who's been reading it. We've gotten a lot of messages lately that our book is being used Mm -hmm. in discussion groups and church groups and school groups, and I can't even tell you what that feels like, so thank you so much. And even more exciting, it is now out in paperback. So if you've been patiently waiting for the paperback and you want to buy the paperback for, you know, like everybody you know, now's the time. Link is in the show notes. Also... As we've been saying here and in our Instagram channel, we're trying to produce more video in 2020, and we're adding a lot of video content to our YouTube channel. So first, you should head on over there and subscribe, and you should also head on over there because we just uploaded our talk on the Electoral College from Wisconsin Lutheran College. So if you want to hear more about the history of the Electoral College, our thoughts on its present condition and future prospective reforms, head on over to YouTube and check it out. And one more housekeeping note, we are recently, as many of you noticed, verified on Twitter, and I'm very, very excited about this. Also, it has changed what I'm able to see in terms of your replies. So if you feel like I'm ignoring you, it is not intentional. I'm working on the settings to figure out how to get the benefits of not seeing comments that call me an idiot, while also engaging (laughs) meaningfully with those of you who have something meaningful to say. So I'm working on it. If you don't get a response from me, just hang tight. We will try to get into a situation where we're seeing everything that you're sharing with us. So here's what we're going to try to tackle today in one episode. Beth and I were traveling during the State of the Union. Both of us caught, I caught probably the first third. How much did you catch? I probably caught the middle third. Okay. Did you go back and watch the whole thing? You know what? I did not. I read about you know it, what? and I did not I watch it I did not anymore. either. I watched the first half. I watched the infamous exchange in which he seemed to reject Nancy Pelosi's handshake. I'm not convinced that's actually what happened. I'm not convinced he saw her. You know, he refuses to wear his glasses. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm not going to speak to that. I missed her tearing up the speech. Those seem to be the two big things everybody is wanting to focus on. Whether it's because, see, both sides are childish, which I'm sorry, I don't believe, or just the sort of the pettiness of the interactions between those two. Currently, what I saw was the first part of the speech, which was really him taking responsibility for the economy, a lot of economic statistics of dubious nature. Both of us have read fact checks of the speech that we really like. We'll be putting those in the show notes. So if you heard things and you thought, is that true? There are really comprehensive articles covering every statistic, every claim he made. And we're not going to go through those in detail, but we'll, we'll link those in the show notes if that's really what you're interested in. I think our tendency to focus on the handshake and paper ripping show that even if you are a person who believes that everyone is petty, childish, partisan, fill in the blank. It's hard to say that we as a public deserve much better when those are the highlights that we take away from a State of the Union delivered in an election year in the midst of an impeachment trial. And when the speech was so unprecedented in terms of how the State of the Union was used, it was a campaign rally more than a State of the Union And to me, it just followed this pattern of the State of the Union becoming less meaningful 
less helpful. And I just want to put in a strong pitch again for returning to our pre-television tradition of having the State of the Union be delivered in writing. Because this was, I think, deeply embarrassing, even putting aside those moments that are getting all the attention right now. Yes, it was definitely designed and produced for television. There were lots of dramatic moments, including the return of a a military member to his family, like this sort of surprise reveal. Your person is back. And I've read so much good reflection from other military families that say those moments should never be for public consumption because they are emotionally complicated and fraught. And it's really exploitive to use our military members, especially the focus on sort of the cheap, easy, good parts of military service instead of spending real time on the sacrifices those families make. So I thought that part was really, I'm happy for those families, but I thought it was gross to use them in that way. And, you know, I'm sort of interested in what your thought process was as you read about the made-for-TV moments like that one. Well, we've talked about this with previous State of the Unions, and yes, I felt like this with Democratic presidents, too. I don't like the guests at all. Because, Mm -hmm. to your point, a lot of what feels really good to watch is really unhealthy for the people we're watching. Mm -hmm. Even when they don't perceive it that way in the moment. Because these people take on a notoriety that you can't really consent to you know, because you don't know what it's going to be like. And so I struggle anytime we have this tendency toward tokenism, like just let's trot out all kinds of people, especially people that I want to make sure I'm sort of gaining ground with electorally and put them on display. It just feels very circusy to me. It feels cheap. And I think it further weakens the Congress for Congress to not only participate in that, but to participate as fans instead of members of a co-equal branch of government, the constant Mm -hmm. stand, cheer, clap, and doing that around these guests who've been brought into that environment, too, when those members of Congress have a much better understanding of what it's like to go viral and and still putting people through it. It upsets me, and I and I really just want us to stop. I, I Trump or not, I just want a brand new approach to the State of the Union because I don't think that this serves the purpose of having the executive branch report to the legislative branch what's happening from the executive's viewpoint. Oh, yeah, that definitely didn't feel like it didn't feel like I'm coming here because you're so important to the process that I'm reporting on what you need to know. That's not what it felt like. And it hasn't for a long time, to be very fair. Mm -hmm. It hasn't for a long time. The moment that I cannot stop thinking about is the awarding of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honor, to radio host Rush Limbaugh. I am finding it difficult to express how upsetting I found that moment. I would love to hear you say more about that. Just uh, let me put you on the spot since you're finding it difficult to express. Will you express it to me? Because I always know when you're in this place, there's something pretty profound underneath that emotion that you're expressing. You know, we had a listener say that she was 
triggered. And she said, I really hate to use that word, but, you know, I listened to Limbaugh a lot growing up because of my parents' listening habits. I watched my own parents' behavior change as they were exposed to him. I feel like this is, in a way, really our wheelhouse. And when you travel around the country and you get messages from people who do not speak to their family members and whose hearts are broken because of our current polarization, it is heartbreaking to see a man who has proudly claimed the mantle of hateful, vile political rhetoric for most of my life, be put on a mantle and rewarded for that behavior. I am very sorry that Rush Limbaugh is sick. I am. He is a human being, and I know people love him, and I'm sorry he's sick. But he has spent his life spewing hate, acting like people like me, Democrats, liberals, are the enemy and are not deserving of basic human respect or dignity. And to watch her place that award around his neck made me sick. It made me sick. It felt like a giant middle finger. That's what it felt like. It felt like, oh, you care? It's getting worse? Screw you. Screw you. You can't talk to your family members. You feel bullied and abused and attacked constantly. Who cares? You don't belong here. We don't care how you feel. This isn't for you. The country's no longer for you. This body is no longer for you. Like, it just, it felt awful. And it still feels awful. Rush Limbaugh is only the third radio voice to receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The previous radio recipients were Lowell Thomas in 1977, who I know nothing about, and Paul Harvey in 2005. Paul Harvey. And I think if you've ever listened to Paul Harvey, we know that is a far cry from Rush Limbaugh. George W. Bush awarded that medal in 2005. I feel conflicted in talking about this because I feel so baited by his choice Mm -hmm. to give this to Rush Limbaugh when Rush Limbaugh is suffering with cancer. It feels to me like he wanted to do it in this way at this time, So that the radical left, the liberals would attack this poor man suffering with cancer. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It just, it feels like another reality TV moment engineered to provoke a reaction, to provoke an equal and opposite reaction. And I want out of that cycle so badly, it's hard for me to put it into words. I really wish if I could just wave a wand right now. I would say to people in the administration, could you just try to adopt first do no harm? Could you just try with with like every speech? Could we just say at the beginning, let's first do no harm? Because however you feel about Rush Limbaugh, there is something I promise that he has said along the way that anyone could acknowledge has done harm. And so I think it is cheapening to the Presidential Medal of Freedom to have awarded this to Rush Limbaugh. I think it is especially fraught at this time in our nation's history when so much of where we are, as you said very well, Sarah, 
can be traced to a lot of the ideas Rush Limbaugh disseminates and his way of disseminating them more than anything. And so I hate that he did this. I hate that Rush Limbaugh is suffering with cancer. I hate that we're having this discussion right now. And I just I just want to back into, let's just do no harm here. I, I pray for Rush Limbaugh and his family around his health. I also would like him to have some serious moments of reflection at this stage of his life. And I, I think this had no place in this environment. But look, a whole lot of what happened in this environment had no place there. And a whole lot of what's going on in the, the chambers of Congress right now don't belong. And, and all I can really do is, is kind of sit with that idea from St. Francis of Assisi that I want to seek to understand more than to be understood. And I'm really trying to put myself in the position of someone who supports this president, feels that my cultural power is on the decline, as Ezra Klein has been talking about pretty brilliantly, I think. He's been saying, you know, what's a lot of our polarization is that is that Democrats feel a loss of political power and Republicans feel a loss of cultural power. And I think that absolutely mm-hmm. explains Rush Limbaugh. And so I'm, I am trying to get there. And I also just, I think this was harmful to people and I and I hate that. Well, and it just feels like, you know, as we start to talk about the impeachment and the acquittal, he is so emboldened. As we're recording today, he really stood up and gloated at the National Prayer Breakfast, which is not an event I'm even particularly attached to and would love to see go away. It just feels like there's no space anymore in our government for all of us. It's all his. Congress is his. The, you know, every department of our federal government that is supposed to serve the national good and everyone in the country, mm-mm, nope, it's for him and his base. Everybody else is shut out. Everybody else is the enemy. And there's nowhere that's looking out for everybody. They're only looking out for him. And it just makes me so sad. And, you know, the impeachment vote, although I found Mitt Romney's speech and justification for his vote to convict on abuse of power, incredibly powerful, overall just feels like this is his now. Everything belongs to him. And it's it's heartbreaking. And you feel it when people even talk about 2020, which we're going to talk about after the break. But it's just so defeating. What I keep coming back to is for what? Because the mm-hmm. the argument that I really like his policy, the rest of it bothers me, just falls apart when you really analyze it. There is a fantastic piece from Peter Suderman at Reason. Reason is a libertarian media outlet about how the State of the Union bashed socialism and was about socialism. It just depends on what group of people that you're talking about. But President Trump's repeated promises to absolutely and always protect Social Security and Medicare endorse a socialism for senior citizens. That's okay. We've been doing that a long time. 
But let's be honest about what it is. And the socialism that he's attacking is a socialism that would apply to young people. The Bernie Sanders-style socialism says, and Sarah, you've been making this point for weeks. It's almost like Peter Suderman has been following you around because you've been (laughs) saying for weeks, you know, what's happening right now is that younger generations are saying, I want some help at the beginning of my life. I don't want to just wait till the end of my life for that help. Yeah, I stole that idea from Derek Thompson, who wrote about it in The Atlantic so brilliantly, and we'll put the link in the show notes, that we have socialism at the end of life for a very good reason. The elderly were living in poverty. Before Social Security, the poverty rate for elderly was like 50%, and we dropped it down to 30 and hopefully lower in some parts of the country. But because of a lot of reasons, globalization, the growth of the tech industry, and income inequality— the cost of college, the cost of health care. We don't have a path to prosperity at the beginning of life, and people need help. This piece also talks about how programs like Social Security, even though we pay into them, are still a socialist model because we pay in so much less than we ultimately take out for a lot of reasons. But that's the fundamental design flaw and why this thing is unsustainable, because we're living longer, the cost of living has gone up and up and up and will continue to do so. And so those of us who justify programs like Social Security with, well, I put my money in and it's like an insurance policy, it, no. well, it, it's it's not. That's just not what the data says is happening and it's not what's working. So, I, you know, I think it's really important to step back from the heat of the, you know, Trump is just all heat, right? All heat, no light. Just it gets hotter and hotter and hotter all the time. And to step back from that heat, as this piece does, and say, well, wait a second. If you say that you like his policy, then Bernie Sanders is probably a pretty good viable second choice for you because it isn't that far apart. It's just applying to different groups of people for different reasons. And the fear that Trump is trying to share when he talks about socialist policies is saying, don't let people who aren't like you take this money away from you. Don't let more Mm -hmm. immigrants into the country because then socialist policies will benefit people not like you at your expense. That is the dynamic that's being created in that discussion. And I just think this is a really good libertarian analysis of that issue that is worth a read, especially if you're talking to people in your life or you find yourself tempted to to that place of, yeah, he really bothers me, but the policies are good. The the policies aren't conservative. You know, they, Mm -hmm. they aren't conservative. Yeah, I can't deal with the socialism as boogeyman anymore. I'm just over it. I'm just over it. It's inaccurate. It's fear-mongering. It wants to use one word that nobody really has decided on a definition for and use it to shut down any curiosity, any questioning, any sharing of perspective. And I'm just, I'm done. I don't want to hear this Socialism is bad. Bernie Sanders is socialism. Elizabeth Warren is socialism. So and we're democratic. We're not socialist. And I just I'm just done. I don't I don't have any patience for it anymore. I really don't. We can put socialism on the in the book of words of meaninglessness now, probably right Mm -hmm. next to conservative, which I also just use. like I don't know what that word means. It's okay. 
But what I will say is if you believe in smaller federal government, that is not what President Trump is proposing on any dimension. And it's it's good to connect with that. And I think that's another reason that reading the State of the Union is always helpful to me. Reading Trump's remarks is always better for me than watching them, because then I can think about what's really being communicated here, not just how it's being communicated. And that's why I like the written fact checks where people will say, here is what he said. This is true. It is partially true. This is misleading. This is a spin on something that, you know, has a little bit of fairness in it, but mostly takes you down a path that is that is wrong. I just think it's really well worth it to like analyze carefully because otherwise it is you just find yourself sliding this path of emotion with him that for me is it, it just leads to a bad day. Okay. And I don't I, I want to minimize that as much as I can. Well we both had very emotional reactions, particularly to Mitt Romney's vote to convict on the abuse of power charge and his speech justifying his decision. You know, I think that the impeachment vote was emotional for lots of reasons, despite the fact that most of us knew what was going to happen. The media had been telling us exactly what's going to happen for months. Um, It still was really, really hard, I think, for it to play out, especially when I think Mitt Romney stood up and was sort of this this disruptive call back to something that feels like we've lost, which is this civic-mindedness, this belief in the importance of history and perspective and putting partisanship in its place. And I think I'd gotten in this space where I had just, I'd compartmentalized impeachment. I had put it, you know, in this box of Trump things that I try not to give too much power. And, you know, the way he stood up and spoke, it just, it kind of didn't let you do that. It kind of was like, no, this is bad. This is really bad. (laughs) And it's heartbreaking. And, you know, the way that things have solidified around his way of politics is really, really antithetical to our democracy and the ideas that we're founded on. And it was just, it was really raw. I felt like it was really raw to watch him and remember like, oh yeah, this, (laughs) we've been in it so long that it's, it was like Mitt Romney standing up and reminding us about the water. I think I'd gotten to a place where I'd forgotten the water around us, the popular story of the fish that swims by the two fish and says, how's the water? And they say, what's water? I think I'd gotten in a space where I was, what's water? And him standing up and speaking as he did sort of in a really intense, painful, emotional way made me look around and see the water. I think I got emotional for a more personal reason, to be honest with you. I I love what you're saying there, Sarah, and I sort of wish that's what I had felt. I think for me, 
you know, it is not my way to watch a speech and get teary ever, but I did watching Mitt Romney. And I really think it's because I, I so often question myself as someone who has always been a Republican and now has left the party and finds myself frequently agreeing much more strongly with Democrats, I think, have I sort of lost my grounding? Have I succumbed to something because of my relationships with people? Or am I kind of losing my footing in some way? And I'm sure some of that is also like the messages that I get on email and social media, you know, sort of accusing me of that. And it is easy to just get in your head and say, like, where where am I? And so I didn't understand how much I needed someone who I frequently agree with on policy to hear that person say something that I believe is true about this president and his conduct and to stand up and say things that I are that I believe are true about the Senate and history and process and what our duties are as human beings. I just really needed that that affirmation that, no, I'm seeing this clearly. And here is a person willing to say to his colleagues, I get why you're all doing what you're doing, but I also know what's real. And in this instance, it's too important to let go of what's real. It just, it felt like someone came to me and said, Beth, your brain still works. And I just, I really needed that from him, and I was really grateful for it. I also want to say about that inevitability around this vote that it's really making me think about the predictive aspect of media and how little I value that part of journalism. I so value journalism. I value, here's what happened. Here's what we know about why it happened. Here's what people are saying happened, and here's what we see that really happened. I am struggling more and more with here's what's going to happen because I think that that really becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that we all, myself included, by not expecting more and better and different from all 100 members of the Senate, I think we made it easier on people to do what they were going to do anyway. You know, we didn't talk about Nancy Pelosi's paper ripping very much, and I'm not inclined to say a whole lot about that. But what I will say is that all the people who are who are saying, well, I was going to vote against Trump, but not now. That was, no, friend, you were going to find a way to vote for Trump anyway. If that's where you are, you were going to do this anyway, right? I think that we, when we have this kind of stronghold about this is what is going to happen And then we have drip, drip, drip of, but maybe not, maybe not because of this, maybe not because of that. And then people always go back to, here's what we said was going to happen. It's not good for us. We've got to give ourselves and other people more room to actually decide and to actually change their minds and their behavior. And so I... I'm really going to think about my media consumption and where where I read what, because I do consume a lot of predictive media. And I just, I want to believe that voting still matters, whether it is citizens voting for elected officials or elected officials voting on legislation or impeachment or whatever else. I totally agree. I have lots to say about that in our next segment about the Iowa caucus and the 2020 race. I think it would be nice to close with the last section of Mitt Romney's speech from the floor. 
I will only be one name among many, no more, no less, to future generations of Americans who look at the record of this trial. They will note merely that I was among the senators who determined that what the President did was wrong, grievously wrong. We are all footnotes at best in the annals of history, but in the most powerful nation on earth, the nation conceived in liberty and justice, that distinction is enough for any citizen. Thank you, Mr. President. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. Hey, Beth, remember when we recorded Tuesday's show and we said that everybody would know the results of the Iowa caucus before we did? I can't even tell you how stressed I was about making sure that we acknowledged that and like framed up an episode that would still be interesting to listen to when the results were out. Anyway, life happens. Well, listen, this is a very good lesson to your point about predictive journalism, the way we have thought about elections in the past. This was the universe telling us, hey, remember last time when people thought they knew what would happen? This is 2020. And if you thought 2016 was unpredictable, buckle up, boys and girls, because we're not going to talk about or assume anything that, quote unquote, usually happens in an election cycle. I just think it was a really good reminder. Not surely after that show came out, my friend texted me and was like, well, you know, Elizabeth Warren's not going to make it. So what are you going to do then? And I'm like, mm-mm, mm-mm. I don't predict the future anymore in politics because that is a losing battle. Message received, universe. Mm-hmm, the first thing mm-hmm. I want to say is we have gotten such wonderful feedback on that episode and especially on our Instagram stories that we did from the actual caucus. You can go to the highlights of our stories. If you're not an Instagram person, here's what you do. You search Pantsuit Politics on Instagram and there are little circles under our profile. You'll see a little circle that says Iowa. You click it, you just sit back and watch, okay? So we brought people into the caucus that we attended and we've gotten such good feedback on all of that. I want to thank our team, especially Ann Thompson, who joined our team for this episode. As we were, you know, grabbing some audio here and there, we would send it to Ann. She would flesh out what was in that audio and then kind of helped us put it all together for our episode. So thank you, Ann, Dylan, Elise. Everybody worked extra hard to make that happen. And thank you to our patrons, who are the reason that we were able to travel to Iowa and do this, and the people who will be sending us to New Hampshire. It, it, it is a big lift for a little show like ours to be able to provide that on-the-ground coverage. But let me tell you how valuable it is, because I have a completely different perspective on this delay in results than I would have had sitting at my house in Kentucky watching Twitter. Yeah, and I think before we dive into results, which we do, in fact, now have, I wanted to share this note from my friend Brooke. She came to dinner with us. She's an Iowan, and she sent us the best note. She said, Dear Iowa, we didn't screw up anything. We worked with a system that was brought before us, and we did it. Our neighbors, friends, and strangers came together in school gyms, local theaters, and other public spaces to participate in democracy. My precinct, IC09, ran smoothly. I know, because I was a volunteer. And based on the informal reporting of my Facebook friends, it's safe to say that over 70% of the caucuses went well, too. To CNN and other news sources that wanted your money shot of the winning candidate, you are part of the problem. This is democracy in action. Even if we have to count the ballots by hand, we will do it. Please give us space and time to do this right. This is where you will see our Iowa work ethic shine. We want this to succeed as much as you do, but not at the risk of being wrong. What does the future hold for the Iowa caucus? We don't know, but I do know that sitting in that high school auditorium last night was the most connected I felt to politics in my entire life. I was the complacent person during the Obama era, thinking nothing could go wrong, that obviously Hillary would win. Well, we know now nothing is certain. 
which is why we must get involved and why I volunteered and participated in my democracy last night. As an Iowan born and raised, I love my state, even with its flaws. Hello, Kim, Steve, and Grassley. We are Iowa nice. We pride ourselves on doing a job well, and this caucus will prove we have what it takes to rise above the noise and stand for democracy in one another. So as we work to find a solution, let's remember we are Iowans through and through, not throw each other under the campaign bus. Volunteers run the caucus. They are your neighbors, friends, business owners, and Iowans. Let's respect each other and not fall victim to cancel culture, name-calling, and finger-pointing. Instead, let's stand up for one another and show our Iowa nice to the nation watching. I love that from Brooke, and I completely understand why these results were delayed after watching what happens. My husband studied public health in graduate school, and forever he has been telling me, as we talk about healthcare, you can have two of three things that we all want. We all want mm-hmm. healthcare to be high quality, cheap, and fast. And most systems can get two of those three things, but not all three. And I think what happens in Iowa is a good example of how it's just really hard to have it all with any process. There are serious issues with a system that requires people to spend a couple of hours on a weeknight in a gym or a church basement or a theater with their neighbors talking about who they want to be the Democratic nominee. There are also serious upsides of doing it that way. And there are just logistical issues. Part of what happened here is that they were trying to report numbers that they've never reported before. And if you watch a caucus actually unfold with people physically going to stand by a candidate sign and then physically moving or maybe leaving because they're unhappy with what happened on that first alignment, getting the raw numbers is not as simple as counting ballots. Ballot is kind of a dumb word, I think, to use to describe what's going on because the way we use it in the rest of the country. In Kentucky, my ballot looks like the SAT, right? It has bubbles on it. I fill in the bubbles and I go stick it in a machine and I walk out. These are cards that hopefully you have a pen in your purse and you can write names down on the card. And then you're moving around just getting a sense of exactly how many people are in that room and then handing those cards out and then trying to get all those cards back so that you can accurately reflect where someone physically stood on the first and second alignment when uncommitted is always an option to that person. This was a major challenge that they were trying to pull off. And it's just no wonder that it's been really difficult. And you add on top of that a new technology for a process run in such a decentralized way by volunteers. This this was just bound to happen. I think that if the caucus process is to continue, we should just set a different expectation about the reporting. Just, just say it's going to take about a week. And that's fine. Nothing is lost in that waiting period. Well, it's not only that you fill out this card. You sign your name to it. (laughs) How much more different could that be than a ballot? I heard a couple news sources describe the delegate count and the raw votes as the difference between the Electoral College and the popular vote. No, 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 no. I reject that characterization wholeheartedly. That's not what's happening. It's every individual's choice. This is not some sort of preordained 
decision the second you walk in and and comparing it to the Electoral College, those electors have basically no choice in what's happening. So I really do not like that characterization of what a caucus is like in this raw vote total versus the delegate count, because it really is a hyper local in this caucus who is viable, who is viable. And if they're not viable, where can they exert their policy preferences most closely? Which candidate most closely aligns with their values? And I just think that is a very different process, a very important process. And I really don't like the push to try to turn it into a ballot, a raw vote total. I don't really think they should report the raw vote total, if you want my honest opinion. Um, I don't think that's helpful. I think that the delegate count is what a caucus is supposed to produce. That's the that's the message that's supposed to be received from this particular democratic exercise. And especially because I'm more and more convinced that the emphasis should be on the parties and the party's nominee and what is best for the party, I'm more inclined than ever to really put my chips on this particular part of the process as opposed to just treating it like an in-person poll, which we all know how I feel about polls. Well, I want to say two things about what you just said. One is that what creates viability is who showed up in the room. That's where that Mm -hmm. electoral college comparison is so silly and really breaks down because we get however many votes we get as a state in the Electoral College, regardless of how many of us participate in the election. It is based on census data. Viability caucus by caucus is based on how many people showed up in this room. Part of the reason the numbers are hard to get is because they're doing calculations in real time. Mm -hmm. What constitutes viability is not determined until everybody gets there and they are counted. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, I think that if I had heard you say, I don't think they should report the raw totals without having been there, I would have said, well, that's silly. Of course they should. But seeing it, you can just understand that this process is not designed for that level of precision. This is a community decision-making exercise. And the numbers matter, but the numbers are not to a person monitored so closely or able to be monitored so closely that you can report that with confidence. I completely understand why there are inconsistencies in totals being reported because it's bananas in there. It would be like Mm -hmm. being at a daycare center and constantly trying to report exactly who is on the swing set versus the slide. I mean, it's hard to keep track of what's going on in that room. But there are some really great things that go on in that room, too. You actually hear people mostly in really courteous, kind, and passionate ways, saying, this is why I believe what I believe. This is who I think will do the best job. You know, I I talked about on Instagram, I met a woman who came in uncommitted, and she ended up sitting in the Amy Klobuchar section. I went over and said, oh, what, what made you find your home here? And she said, these are my three neighbors. We talk in the backyard all the time. All three of them were here, and they told me why, and I trust them. That's really great. That's wonderful. I just feel really sensitive on Iowa's behalf to the media reporting right now because Mm -hmm. having seen it, I just and and I also feel so much more committed 
to the two of us getting out and seeing things in person more frequently because it did make an enormous difference. Honestly, not just in how I feel about the caucus process, it it changed how I was leaning in the primary to be at those in-person events too. So let's talk about the results because we do have some now. As it stands right now, it's a, almost a dead tie between Mayor Pete and Senator Sanders. Then you have Elizabeth Warren, uh, about six to eight points behind Joe Biden's campaign, describing the results of him coming in fourth as a gut punch, and then Amy Klobuchar in fifth. So I think it's very good for Mayor Pete, even if it ends up being a complete tie. I think he exceeded expectations, and that's always important coming out of Iowa. And I think Senator Sanders did not meet expectations. In particular, his argument is, I turn out. I bring people into the process. And the turnout was not great. It was way below 2008, and it was about the same as 2016. So... I think that's not great for him either. What do you think about our two two front runners? Well, on Sanders, it bugs me to hear if people turn out we will win. Because it leaves us in this <laughs> he wins either way and when he says that, right? It's the voters' fault for not showing up if he doesn't win. And if he doesn't win, the rest of us are supposed to say, well, obviously the process is flawed because mm-hmm. you because you are telling us constantly that actually most people agree with you. And that vibe from Senator Sanders was reinforced for me being on the ground. There is such a high degree of certainty with his people and a real closed off sentiment about the rest of the field from many, not all of them. In our caucus, I would say when he was not viable, about half of his supporters left and about half went to Elizabeth Warren. So I don't want to unfairly paint everyone with one broad brush. I will say that what we learned about the way he has interacted with local people on the ground in Iowa, to me, reinforces the idea that he is not a team player. Mm-hmm. About Mayor Pete, I think what we saw on the ground in Iowa is how very well run that campaign is, how very organized its ground game is. The advance work was well done. And I think his closing message in Iowa is a really strong one. I was leaning towards Senator Klobuchar going into Iowa, coming out. I feel really strongly about Buttigieg as the best candidate in this field. I did not expect to feel that way. I just think they did really good work in Iowa. And what what kind of persuaded me was seeing what a good team and operation he's put together that addresses some of my concerns about his experience level. I think he is a person who will surround himself with people who will bolster his weaknesses, that he'll value expertise, that he could rebuild the executive branch by inspiring more people into government. I think he just displayed those qualities in a relatable, inviting you know, very very invitational way in Iowa. He talked about, we want to welcome people of all political stripes into this movement. 
I just think he was very, very good in Iowa, and that's why he was able to beat expectations. I do not think at all that the New Hampshire results will mirror what we saw in Iowa. Maybe they will. The polls are showing that direction, but New Hampshire is such a different place, and it's such a different process. You know, Buttigieg benefited a lot from people going to that second choice. What happens when everybody just puts their first choice down and leaves? I don't know. I don't think we're going to have much more clarity on who the nominee will be post-New Hampshire than we have sitting here today. Oh, I'm definitely not predicting what's happening in New Hampshire. See opening of this segment. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Who knows? And if they tell you they know, they're lying. I think that leaving Iowa and thinking deeply about the about this process and the future of the Democratic Party, I believe Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg to be the best choices. If you are a lifelong Democrat, or even a new Democrat, I guess, and you care about the party, I think both of those people are very well-equipped and have shown through their their decision-making um, that they care deeply about down-ballot choices, that people who work in party politics are elected officials at the local level who are on the ground, knocking on doors, understanding the impact of policy on the their own neighbors and friends and family members, can trust either of those two people to take care of the party in a real, impactful, and to me, important for the entire country way. And so I would be really comfortable voting for either Mayor Pete or Senator Warren as I am really prioritizing who is the best nominee for the Democratic Party. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. 
Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. That being said, you know, I think that Mayor Pete benefited from the impeachment in that Senator Warren, who also had a really, really strong ground game, uh, could not be in the state making her find her case to the people of Iowa, which I think really stinks. And I wonder what the impact will be as we move forward now that they are not no, shackled to their seats in the Senate. I was talking to my family. We had a little caucus yesterday, like your breakfast caucus, and I articulated something that I hadn't quite put into words before. But, you know, we spent a lot of time our last morning in Iowa um, with a fantastic volunteer for the Warren campaign who brought so much insight, both about the impact of media on candidates and Um, the future of tech and tech usage in the Democratic Party, and particularly the decisions of Michael Bloomberg, who I also do believe cares about down-ballot Democrats and funding and equipping the party in a real way. And I want to put that on the record, too. And, you know, thinking about her and, and, and her candidacy and some of my struggle with it, and I think, you know, My struggle is how people perceive her and Medicare for all and the polling. And I start listening to polling, even though I hate polling. And I thought, I've got to do what I know is right, which is tap in with my own experience and my own values. And, you know, my child recently got ear tubes. Pretty innocuous procedure, right? And it cost my family $3,600. And I think... How do families without the economic wherewithal that my family has handle that? And I know how they handle it. They go bankrupt. The percentage of people going bankrupt with insurance over medical cost is extraordinary. And we were talking about this, and my husband was articulating about how when Obamacare first came out, that was the lowest our insurance as a family of five. What We weren't a family of five at the time, but that was our lowest cost at the time. And that's, they've chipped away at it and chipped away at it. Our costs have risen and risen and risen. And I thought we were talking about this cost. We were talking about how my, my stepfather recently had a heart attack and he was on Medicare and how that changed the entire experience. And my husband 
was talking about how in 1968, a time we were talking about in a previous episode, how the space problem program really came about because people needed something to believe in. They needed the government to do something good. And I thought, I understand that the concern with Medicare for all are not only the people working in the insurance industry, and that's a big, important thing we cannot neglect, but that it's it's a mistrust in the government. But I said out loud, and I hadn't really articulated this way, we're in this vicious cycle. We can't do big things because people don't trust the government, and people don't trust the government because we're not doing big things. And we have to get out of that cycle. And, you know, I believe that Senator Warren and Medicare for All is a really good solution to that. Health care and the cost of health care and student loans are crippling an entire generation, my generation. And I'm just, I'm tired of being scared and I'm tired of looking at polls and thinking about Michigan and being all wrapped up in who can beat Trump and electability. And I'm trying to take my own advice. What matters to me? I want a female president. I want somebody who is smart and capable and passionate and wants to do big things that help the people of this country struggling under the weight of some real structural inequalities. And I would not be mad if that person was Mayor Pete. But I really believe that Senator Warren is the person to do that. And I'm just trying to lean into that. It's so hard when you're wrapped up, especially on the ground in those processes. And I'm just trying to like, exactly like you said, like lean away from the predictive stuff. It's so hard right now. I had somebody at my book lab last night. Well, you know, he's going to win a second term. Like, and that's the, the narrative right now. Well, he's high from acquittal and he's high from this Iowa caucus debacle. And he's just, he's like Superman and he's going to win. And we just have, I mean, he's, you can't defeat him. And like, you know, it's just, it is so anxiety producing. And I have, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I don't think anybody who looks at all that and thinks they know what's going to happen nine months from now is doing us any favors. And so I just think we all have to lean on what we, our values and what we know to be true. I'm trying for my, my own decision-making to prioritize things that impact my life, things that impact the Democratic Party that I care deeply about. And I don't think that's just one person. But as we move forward, you know, we have to start really thinking about what's important to us and get out of that poll-driven narrative. What makes us feel happy to participate in democracy? Which candidate speaks to our personal life experiences? You know, whose personality do we like? Whose organization do we like? And just not get caught up in all that. And I know it's hard and I know it's scary, but man, watching, being on the ground in Iowa and watching people really step in it and sort of (laughs) be brave and move around the room and listen to their gut, it was inspiring. I want to draw out a little distinction in what I'm hearing you say. Because I think that there are folks who can hear, I'm just going to worry about me and think of that as a selfish way to vote. And I think there's something that we need to to break apart here. 
I was showing Jane pictures from our trip and telling her about the people we met and what all we saw. And I got to this picture of someone holding an Andrew Yang sign and had his face on a thousand dollar bill. She was like, what's that? She's very drawn to money these days. <laughs> and um, and I said, oh, well, he has this plan that would give everybody a thousand dollars a month. It's called universal basic income, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, oh, well, would we get a thousand dollars a month? And I said, well, if he became the president and Congress passed this plan, and it survived the court system, yeah, we'd get $1,000 a month like everybody else. She goes, well, then we should vote for him. And I said, well, okay, like, I get that. And also, that's one thing, and we think about the whole thing when we vote. And we got to think about what would it mean for that to happen? And so we don't want to be people who just hear, oh, give me something, I'll take it. And that's how I make my decision, because that's a selfish way to vote. And voting is an act where we we prioritize our neighbors, too. The calculus politically of will people support someone who is a woman, who is gay, um, who has this particular policy, that is not caring about our neighbors. That is distrusting our neighbors and vocalizing mm-hmm. it constantly. And I think that we need to draw that distinction You can Mm -hmm. care Mm -hmm. about your neighbors by thinking about some of your own lived experience and how other people might be experiencing that and what the whole looks like in the way that I think you're talking about, Sarah. When we say, oh, other people will never vote for X, Y, Z, we are really tearing at the fabric of our community experience. So I want to care about my neighbors in the sense of what leadership style and policies do I believe will most benefit the United States at this particular moment in our history? I don't serve that purpose by saying, I like so-and-so, but they'll never win. Mm -hmm. I've been saying that about Amy McGrath in Kentucky. I've heard so many people say, well, I'm going to vote for her, but she can't beat Mitch McConnell. And I'll say, great. If we could just practice not saying the second half of that sentence, that would be super. Because when we tell each other and ourselves that she can't beat Mitch McConnell, we add to its truth. You know, instead of just saying, I really like her, I think she'll be a great senator, I'm going to vote for her. And I hear people saying the same thing about that primary. Don't make it inevitable. There's a primary to go through. And there is. We shouldn't be complacent about that either. I, I think we would all be better off if we could come back from Here's what I believe about the rest of the folks I share this space with. And and as you're saying, lean into, here's what I think is best right now. And I trust the people around me to at least hear it and consider it. Even when that is so difficult after spending five minutes on Facebook, and it is, we just have to keep doing it. We have to keep chipping away because the people who have taken to Facebook today to tell us all that Donald Trump is going to win re-election in a landslide because of the paper ripping, are doing that work of constantly creating a story. And so Mm -hmm. we have to do the good work, the hard, patient work of constantly creating a better story from our perspectives. And listen, if you're not comfortable... Because it's no better to say, of course, Amy McGrath can win. Of course, Donald Trump's not going to win. Like, don't I, I don't think right. that's a solution either. It's not. I think the solution is, you know what? I'm going to participate in my democracy right now, because if I learned anything from 2016, worrying about the future is not helpful. We're trying to predict the future 
is really a not helpful exercise. You know, I think if we can all just practice saying, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but this is what's important to me right now, that would be really good for our democracy. All of us sitting around and prognosticating and predicting is anxiety producing. It kills the conversation. It kills curiosity. It kills any conversation about values and priorities and lived experiences. And it makes, I just, I think you're totally right. This emphasis on predicting election outcomes or taking election outcomes and making them about more than what they are is is hurting us. I feel like John Stewart on Crossfire that time. You're hurting America. Let's all stop doing that. Well, let's end on something that does not hurt America and that I would hope all of us can agree is a wonderful thing. This year, there was a fully accessible American Sign Language caucus in Iowa. And you can see a video about it that is just going to make your day better, I promise. And I was reading from the Daily Moth these comments, like there's a woman named Sarah A. Young Bear Brown who says, it's amazing to be a part of this first ever historical ASL caucus. Because I'm a Native American and a person of color, it is not often that I see us voting. It's critical that minorities vote, so I feel honored to be part of this event. And then Jennifer Keaton said, we know that politics in the deaf community usually doesn't work in collaboration. It has been isolated from one another with a wide gap. Many deaf people can't go in depth in politics because there's no accessibility and many barriers. And so it's just a wonderful thing to see us making more space in our process for everyone. And I was delighted by this. And I'm so happy that one of our listeners shared it with us on Instagram. To wrap up today's episode, which has been intense emotionally. (laughs) I put out a call on the news brief for listener input on meditations or mantras or reflections we could use for Beth and I to, to, to record the show. The idea was we would just have these sort of personal moments to reflect and kind of put ourselves in the right headspace before we started recording. But as always, you guys came through in such a massive, amazing way that it feels wrong to keep them to ourselves. And so the one we wanted to share to close out today's episode is from Alicia. And I think it's good to close with because we're all going to go out there and we're going to have hard conversations and we're going to be thinking about the difficult journey ahead on the, the road to Election Day. And I think that Alicia's words that she so generously wrote for us are perfect. As we wander and parse through the hard matter in front of us, may we seek love over liberty, clarity over victory, and compassion over comeuppance. May our voices ring with the hope of freedom, joy of liberty, and the passion of responsibility. And above all, May we choose to hold with tenderness the beauty and fragility of life and all the names we draw across our lips and all the faces we stare into each day. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you to everyone, Laura Sweet, Ann Thompson, Lindsay James, too many people to name who made our trip to Iowa so wonderful. We have more sound from that that we're going to figure out a way to share with you creatively. We're headed to New Hampshire this week, Monday afternoon at one o'clock. If you are in the New Hampshire area, join us at River Run Bookstore in Portsmouth. One o'clock on Monday. We'll put that on social media too. So much more to come. 
Have a wonderful weekend and keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.